Six months ago, cartoons depicting the Prophet Muhammad were published in the Danish press. Over the past seven days, these cartoons have caused an international furor. I'm joined today by Dr. Hisham Helia of the Centre for Research into Ethnic Relations. We've had a, a, an interesting few days with the, uh, the publishing of cartoons which have caused great offence within the, uh, the wider Muslim community. Um, what do you think are going to be the repercussions of that? Uh, well, it's difficult to tell at the moment simply because there's a lot of political wrangling going on about this, um, and there has been from the start. Uh, the the issues surrounding the cartoons uh, didn't erupt uh, two weeks ago or three weeks ago. This is this has been going on for some six months now, ever since August, I think, when the cartoons were first floated in Denmark and published. Um, but for political reasons, they were made to become more important in the public sphere and in media, such that we have now seen a huge explosion of fury across certain parts of the Muslim world. So and why is it that all of a sudden this has become a live issue? If these cartoons have been in the public domain for six months, why now? Uh, we're still trying to work that out because there are other things that are equally as offensive by the same standards that made these uh, these cartoons offensive in many different parts of uh, the Western world and indeed the Muslim world. Uh, you can walk on you know any number of streets in any number of Muslim capitals and find particularly distasteful types of imagery and uh, literature, but it hasn't erupted in the way that this has. Um, and I think that all has to do with the way that uh, we now look at the this ever-shrinking world that we live in. The the issues surrounding the cartoons uh, may be, you know, ostensibly about the cartoons and the the picturing uh, the picturing of the Prophet Muhammad, but it's not just about that. It has everything to do with identity. It has everything to do with the way that Muslims perceive themselves vis-a-vis -vis the West, how the West view them, uh, views itself vis-a-vis -vis the, the Muslim world. And it's important to make the distinction between the Muslim world and Muslims of, of the West living in the West. Um, it's not so much about the, the West anymore as some sort of you know, mythical construct uh, where it's defined, you know, according to geographical barriers and, you know, culture. Uh, the the Muslim world and Islam have been a part and parcel of the West for mm, well over a thousand years, if we really look at the history behind it. And it's very difficult to, you know, separate the two. Um, but in the context of our world today, uh, the Iraq war, um, Islamophobia, which the United Nations uh, claimed several years ago was a serious problem uh, pervading you know, the entire world, um, perhaps you know, second only to anti-Semitism on the European scale. Uh, and this issue of modernity, uh, the, the world has not yet come to grips with what modernity means for itself. And especially when it comes to identity. And this is all about identity. This is about European identity so and Muslim identity. are you arguing that the, the Islamic faith is at odds with the spirit of maternity and the, and, and, and the spirit of, of uh, what would you call it, technological progress? Are, are you arguing... Oh, no, not at all. I mean, when, uh, when I say modernity, I'm not talking about technology. Technology is a part of modernity, is a result of modernity, but it's not you know, equivalent to the, to the same. Uh, in fact, the, uh, the irony behind the most extreme and radical 
movements in Muslim communities is that uh, while they they claim to be harking back to a glorious you know pre-modern traditional time, uh, they are the most adept at using technology to f- you know put forward their aims, whether it's in media, or whether it's through mass communication, um, or indeed through uh, uh, through weaponry. You know the the modern tech modern technology is certainly not at odds with you know their vision, but modernity as a way of viewing the world and the relationship between human beings and the world and between each other. Uh, that's not something that may be at odds with Islam, but it's definitely a phenomenon that uh, all all peoples and all faiths and all philosophies have had to struggle with. Um, and indeed, indeed, it's I mean, nothing. We don't don't we see that with Christian fundamentalism, particularly in the states? It uses the mass media very nicely. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm. But uh, is in some ways at odds with modern ideologies. Um, that's that's another reaction, you know, but there are uh, many more reactions. I mean, the uh, the issues surrounding, you know, the destruction of our environment, that's another reaction to modernity. Uh, modernity has created that sort of phenomenon where uh, we, we're talking about terrorism and we're talking about uh, these sorts of problems, but really they'll mean for nothing if we don't uh, take on board the real threats that we as human beings pose to our, our environment. And that's all part of modernity. This mass global capitalist culture is all part of modernity. The uh, materialism that pervades our societies, this is all part of modernity. But there are other things that are part of modernity as well. I think some commentators would say that you have difficulty in, that any analyst would have difficulty in saying that there is not an east-west struggle at the moment. When I say there's not an east-west struggle, uh, I need to be very clear. Uh, When I talk about the west, um, I am talking about a civilization that um, may be centred in, you know, what maybe vaguely what we consider the western part of the hemisphere but it's not you know it's not only there because we always consider australia for example to be part of the west in a particular way um and uh, the east you know is also you know geographically a bit problematic but when if we take geography completely out of it if we you know bring it down to ideas and ideologies and political philosophies then again it's very hard to distinguish that sharply between the two but Saying east-west, for me, seems to imply that there hasn't been a cross-fertilization between the two. So are we just talking about a new tribalism here? Oh, well, this idea of a tribe um, and the idea of the other is actually the subject of, uh, of my new book that should be published by Ivy Taurus later on this year. Available um, at all good bookshops. Uh, well, definitely at the University of Warwick bookshop, um, <laughs> which sets the standard, obviously. Um, because the... Uh, the issue that I kept on coming you know, into clash with while I was doing my research on the European Union and its Muslim communities was that there was this idea of the other. You, know, you talked about tribalism, but that has all to do about the other. We will define ourselves in contradistinction to the other. You know, the European will define itself according to, not, not according to the values of the other, but in contradistinction to. Um, and this is, you know, a long-running thing in uh, in European societies, but also in societies all around the world. Um, it's just very interesting to see how historically that played itself out. In the 19th century and the early part of the 20th century, uh, a good deal of the European intelligentsia was uh, viciously opposed to Islam. Um, but it's interesting to see how they were. 
um, they decried Islam for its treatment of women because they said that it was a faith that gave too much freedom to the woman. Uh, 20, you know, 20, 30, 40, 60 years later, you know, the, uh, the opposition from certain parts of the intelligentsia uh, is still there, but now it's on another basis. Because now we've decided that to treat women is good. Um, so that must mean that the other treats women as bad. For example, you know, or, uh, or the idea of intellectual freedom and freedom of thought. Um, it used to be that uh, uh, it was almost seen as threatening because all of these new exciting discoveries were taking place in Muslim Spain um, under you know relatively high levels of education and interactive engagement. And so, no, no, we can't be having that, you know. So we're we're contradistincting our own definitions all the time, and the the Muslim world does it as well. Now it is, you know. Uh, Freedom of you know such and such uh, freedom of speech. Freedom of speech will definitely become the new one. Um, but for instance, democracy or uh, certain modes of expression and so on. Uh, these are all Western. Hence, they're bad. Mm. You know, it's it's a very it's it's another type of tribalism, um, which is a new phenomenon in the Muslim world. Such that historians uh, now tell us that the the Greek heritage, the Greek intellectual heritage that we know about and that we explore and that we discuss in universities around the world would be unknown to us if it had not been rescued by the Muslims of Spain and translated. What, the things that we read in Greek now, they're not actually the original Greek texts. They're translations of Latin texts, which were translations of Arabic, which mm. were translations of Greek. You now have this world where everybody is interconnected and everybody is interdependent on each other. And that throws up a lot of scary, you know, sort of ideas for people. And what's new about that is that it's happening very, very quickly. This is all taking place very, very quickly. The world has always been, in a sense, in a matter of flux. Um, because things change, you know. People change, societies change, cultures change. But modernity has really made this change go very, very quickly. I, I mean, one thing that I think many people would be very concerned about is the rage on all sides, there's a real fury out there at the mm. moment, and it's quite frightening. Mm-hmm. It, well, it is. Um, and for example, the the burning of the embassies in Syria. Okay. Now, obviously, there was a lot of rage going on, and one part of that rage we can understand, you know, without reference to politics. Um, this was seen, and it was legitimately seen, as a provocation. Um, those cartoons were gratuitous attempts to provoke people. I don't think they realized the provocation that they were causing. I don't think they realized what would happen why as a do you result. Th- why do you think they released those cartoons? Mm, I I'm, I'd prefer not to speculate too much on it. Uh, I know why people published them afterwards, why they republished them. I don't know why those, publi- uh, why those cartoons took place in the first place. Um, it's not all that strange, though, because it does follow a certain pattern in uh, the Western media to, you know, engage in in certain types of, uh, I can't call it racist, but in certain types of bigoted behavior, and this is the only real field that you can do that anymore. Um, and you, you see that by looking at the arguments that have taken place in different EU countries, regardless of these cartoons, long before, where people who used to be considered to be racists have now not been able to express that. Uh, so they switch to something else that is a little more acceptable. In France, it used to be acceptable to, you know, be racist against the the Arab immigrants. It's now seen not to be acceptable. 
So they've switched, um, or at least some of them have, um, and they've become uh, Islamophobic instead. Uh, the British National Party has tried to you know, mitigate its image in this country by claiming we're not really racist, you know, it's not that we dislike people on the account of their race, but they were extremely Islamophobic in the run-up to, you know, their recent campaigns. Um, and that's one of the reasons why uh, Nick Griffin was brought to trial, because of the things that he had said. That if he had said them about a racial group, there would be no question. He would have been locked up. But saying it about a religious group and a religious uh, and a faith that was something that wasn't quite yet uh, untouchable. Um, so I can, I can speculate that, you know, that's maybe part of the reason why they were originally published. Um, but I, I'm not sure what the motivations are. What I do know is that it had nothing to do with freedom of speech or freedom of expression. We now know about the Danish uh, publisher that did that, that he was offered cartoons depicting Jesus um, a few years ago, and he rejected them, saying that they'd be offensive. Um, we know that uh, uh, recently uh, he was asked, or rather the publisher was asked, if they would print you know, cartoons about Holocaust denial and the Holocaust and uh, Jewish suffering. He said, no, not under any circumstance. We wouldn't do that. You know, that that's out of bounds. Um, so the, the whole idea that this is about freedom of speech and freedom of expression, it sounds really hypocritical to me. I'm not sure what sort of, you know, benefit they were hoping to get out of it. But whatever it was, it wasn't for the benefit of uh, our European community. It wasn't for the benefit of understanding and respect within our societies. And I hope that we all learn a great deal of lesson, a great many deal of lessons from this unfortunate experience. Um, but that, that would be something that we have to think about in the long term. In the medium term and in the short term, we have to cool the rage and the rage has been felt across the Muslim world, um, and including those parts of the Muslim world that exist here in the UK uh, and in Europe. Because every Muslim feels very, very, very dearly about the Prophet. Um, these cartoons were not just picturing the Prophet, which in itself is you know, kind of taboo in most Muslim communities because um, it's seen as you know, one step towards perhaps idolatry. Um, and uh, the Muslims are nothing if not heavily monotheistic. Um, but these were insults. Many commentators, though, have said they are just cartoons and no excuse for what we saw afterwards. Absolutely. Uh, I have no... Uh, please, let, let me make this very clear. I'm not here defending the, the response to the cartoons. Um, I'm not a religious leader and I don't go uh, into mosques and stand on, uh, on Friday prayer to tell people uh, how they should live their lives, but in the, uh, the pieces that I've written and uh, in the interviews that I've done and the contacts that I've had with uh, the media and community organizations and so on, which I'm continuing at the moment, um, I keep on saying there's no excuse for this sort of response. There's no excuse for suicide bombing either. But that doesn't mean that there's no explanation to why these sort of things take place. Um, there's definitely not an excuse. The, the, uh, the Prophet always honored ambassadors, so there's no excuse for burning embassies. Um, the, the Prophet suffered a great deal uh, in Mecca before you know, he had any political power of his own, and he always responded with kindness and forbearance. When he had political power, 
um, he also responded with kindness and forbearance. This is, I mean, we're talking about a community that is reacting to what they see as the defilement of the honor of the Prophet. And they're reacting in ways that are, you know, incredible when you compare how he behaved. Um, when he was in Mecca, we, we know uh, of the story as recorded by the uh, historical texts, but when he was in Mecca, before uh, before he left and went to Medina, uh, he would walk you know, past a certain house every day, and every day um, a Jewish lady would throw garbage at him from you know, above the street. And uh, one day there was no garbage thrown, um, and he inquired as to her health, and she was ill, so he took care of her. Now, people talk about how, well, this is before he had political power, this is before he had the, the way to respond. And uh, All I can say to that is that the, the Prophet's own uncle was assassinated um, by a particular you know, individual in Medina uh, during a battle. And uh, his uncle was mutilated and his heart was eaten by this individual. Um, when he took Mecca, and this was at the end of a very victorious campaign, um, it was, you know, uh, a, a, almost a bloodless coup of Mecca. He had every opportunity to exact, um, you know, retribution for that assassination, that mutilation, and, you know, the eating of the heart, you know, and he forgave her completely. So what you're saying is that the Islamic faith is one of love and forgiveness, but this isn't being exhibited in the behaviour that we're seeing now. Um, well, actually, well, there, there are two parts to that. First of all is that the, the responses, I think, have more to do with tribalism and identity than they have to do with faith. Um, and the second is, is that there are other responses that are being propounded at the moment, but they're not being covered by the media. Um, tomorrow, for example, in Birmingham, I know that there is another sort of rally going on, and it's a rally to talk about the characteristics of the Prophet and to talk about what a loving and kind and forbearing person he was. And uh, there will be, you know, songs sang about him, and there will be uh, the opportunity for people to come and ask, you know, who who is this man that was depicted in these cartoons in this manner? And that's another response. I know of uh, another response in East Africa, um, where uh, a whole community, I think in Zanzibar, I think the whole island uh, decided to do this when they heard about the cartoons. Rather than sort of campaign and protest and, uh, you know, shout and so on, they, they actually held uh, a celebration of the birth of the Prophet. Um, and they uh, they made the supplication for peace and serenity in the world. But and this tribalism, this tribalism we're talking about, that's that's exhibited in many places. For instance, I'm thinking of Northern Ireland, mm -hmm. where we had two two branches of a of a religion again, which is supposed to be dedicated to peace and love, yes. and they were bombing and shooting and kneecapping each other. Left but that's all about tribalism. It had nothing to do about Christ. Absolutely. I mean, they tried to, you know, uh, but then you know, of course we see, we see the same tribalism exhibited in the West towards Islam, don't we? Yes, we do. Uh, and this is what I mean when I say that I find it difficult to distinguish between the West and the East or the West and Islam in this manner because they're talking about their tribe. Their tribe is the West. Islam is another tribe. It's the tribe of Islam, you know. Um, but in your own tribe, if you want to think of it as a tribe, you have members of that tribe. Um, in the tribe of uh, 
of the West, you, you could not define that tribe without reference to Islam. So, you know, how, how does that quite work? But you're right, the tribalism definitely exists and will continue to exist, unfortunately, for the foreseeable future. And I think that that's almost an inescapable part of modernity and something that we have to focus on very, very strongly if we're going to get away from it because most conflict erupts from that. Most conflict, all, in fact, all conflicts, I think, uh, originally at their core have one thing in common and that is that somebody decides that they're better than somebody else. And that's the beginning of tribalism. And this is a key message, actually, of the Islamic faith. It doesn't talk about tribalism, you know, because you know, that word doesn't really exist. Uh, we have words that approximate it in the Arabic language, asabiyya. Um, we have prejudice, ta'asub, uh, and so on. And uh, asabiyya was defined as supporting your, you know, your brother or your sister um, in what is wrong. Because the idea is that you support what is right, regardless of who does it. Uh, and the Qur'an, the, the actual text of the Muslims, says that you should stand for truth, even if it be against your own selves. Hisham, if you think about now the, the situation we find ourselves in, do you think there is a point of reconciliation between these two tribes? Yes. Um, but it's not one that we will fall into by default. It's one that we have to work at there is definitely a lot of common ground to be found very very easily I might add but we need to go beyond that we need to be more imaginative about the way that we we work with one another and that has to do with the actual logic of tribe we have to break down this idea of tribe in order to get past it so bearing in mind the situation that we now find ourselves in what do you think are the, are the roots from here um well, it, it really depends on leadership, to be honest with you. The, the mood is such that there's a great deal of emotion in the air. And emotion is not a bad thing. It simply needs to be focused in a proper way. But when emotion turns into unbridled types of passion, then by its very nature, it will gallop in you know, the, the direction that it wants. Now, leaders have to focus that sort of emotion, that sort of passion, for it to be something constructive. Normal believers should also be able to do that, but we are living in a time where the, the usual education of the believer, and I'm talking specifically about the Muslim context now, uh, has broken down in a lot of the, the places of the Muslim world. Do you believe that the necessary leadership is available now? Uh, definitely not, <laughs> because if it were, then we wouldn't be seeing most of these problems anyway. Um, that's not to say that there aren't good leaders out there. That's not to say that all countries are the same or all communities are the same. Uh, you will see that in some communities the responses have been different, even if they're not covered by the press. You'll see in other communities the responses haven't been. And in fact, in some of these communities, even on a national scale, uh, I believe this issue has been abused, specifically directed by them in order to deflect their problems of leadership because they know that this problem of depicting the prophet in such a in such a way is something that automatically the people will react to so if they position themselves as figureheads in that struggle to defend the prophet then their records of abuse and uh, bad governance suddenly become you know second place 
and are no longer a priority. And we've seen that happen. It's been very obvious in some places. There have been a number of times in the past, of course, where uh, national politicians have turned to international struggle as a way of... Uh as a way of saving themselves on the domestic scene. Absolutely, and it works, and it works, especially when you have issues that are so emotionally charged. Um, it, it's very difficult for people to sort of stop and take stock as to what this really means in their context, what else is being played at here. Um, and governments know that. Governments are, are fully aware of that. I mean, we're talking about Syria, and we're talking about this massive protest, when was the last time you heard of a protest in Syria? This is a country that outlaws protest, or only allows certain types of protest. All these protests are state-sanctioned, or state-permitted. You would never be able to have a protest against the government. Or if you did, it would have to be something very, very you know, nuanced and particular and so on. But you know, the government has its own records. Um, and you know, that's something very, very uh, important to note. Dr. Hisham Halia, thank you very much for joining us today. No, thank you. And I'm sure this is something that we will uh, we will see more of.